You know, I, I was thinking the other day because uh, once again, I got asked by, by grandkids this question. They go, Grandpa, or they call me Poppy, what's your favorite movie? And most of the grandkids know the answer to that by now. If someone asks me what my favorite movie is, I'm going to say, I'm pausing for a moment for you to think about what your favorite movie is. There may be two or three, but if I had to narrow it down, my favorite movie of all time would be in 1972, the original Godfather. Uh, it still gets listed almost all the time in the top five all-time movies. And if you all think I'm crazy, if, if you go back and see it now and think, oh man, that's not such a great movie, Hey, to me it was. Every scene is like a moving oil painting, the dialogue, the uh, cinematography, all of it. The acting is just off the chart phenomenal. All through the years, this old black and white movie starring Orson, Orson Welles called Citizen Kane has always been listed as one of the top movies of all time as well. And I've tried to watch Citizen Kane several times. I just, I just can't make it through it. I don't get it. I don't like it. So if anyone here is thinking, Godfather, I don't get it. I don't like it. I get the fact <laughs> that you don't get it. But we all have, we all have d different favorites. What might be your favorite song? I get asked that by Grant. Your favorite song or your favorite artist. It often starts with that. And they know I'm probably going to say the Beatles. <laughs> That also dates me, more than dates me. Oh, well, what's your favorite Beatles song? That's a hard one, man. I don't know. Ticket to Ride. It depends, depends what kind of mood I'm in. Um, some of the songs in the movie help. Uh, and then I get asked this. They go, Poppy, you've been in the ministry all these years. What's your favorite scripture verse? Now, that's a difficult question because I have so many. But I would say over the decades of my life, if I had to zero in on one verse, it would be the one I'm going to use as the basis of my message today and probably even the basis of my message for the next time I'm able to come and to share the Word of God with you. This passage is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. And so let me get to the part I want to read you. I'll start in verse 27. And I'm using today the New King James. I don't often use the New King James. I'll tend to use the NIV or the NLT or the different more modern translations. But, but I just like the more old standard one for this passage. Isaiah chapter 40, verse. let's start in verse 28. Uh, Isaiah, this is actually, yeah, Isaiah is talking to the people. He says, have you not known... Have you not heard? <laughs> People are down and discouraged. It's like, where do you got? What's up with you guys? Are, are you not paying attention? Have you do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Man, Google's got it, got it going on. The first two letters are almost God, G-O, and you can search Google. God is so brilliant. God makes Google look stupid. I mean, God's understanding is unsearchable. Then he says, he neither faints nor is weary and his understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29 says, and he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even Youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those, and here, here's the verse now, Isaiah 40, 31, probably my favorite verse in the Bible. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.
That's a very familiar passage. Now I'm going to be speaking for more than just that one verse for the next couple of times that we're, we're together. But today, um, it's a familiar word, but I'd like to bring it to you in an unfamiliar manner. Uh, this passage is both profound and poetic at the same time. It is written to a people who have just given up, if I could be quite blunt. They've lost hope. They're living in despair. Uh, a lot of them have gotten so down, they don't even believe they're even worthy of being blessed anymore. I hope that's not you today, but I just felt God speak to me right now and say, someone who's with us, you almost feel unworthy for God to come, even by his wonderful grace and love and to touch your life. I'd ask you to, to really listen today, because I promise you, God does love you, and if you'll give him a chance, there's nothing he can't do. Back to the word. These people are weary, they're weak, and they're worn. To put it another way, they are exhausted, exasperated, and expended. They have been drained and depleted, and they think there's no way that they can keep going. That's why this verse is so powerful. Isaiah is saying, God is going to do something, but you need to wait for God to move in your life. And if you do, I mean, he'll give strength to you. He will cause you to mount up with wings as eagles, and you'll find that you can run and not get tired, walk and not faint. It's interesting that these people that are so worn out, these very same people who were weary and weak and worn are, are, the, are God's people. God calls his people in the Bible the apple of his eye. And if you touch Israel, you've touched the apple. That's like the pupil, the pupil. Uh, if you touch someone in the eye, man, that's tough. That's, you're getting, God says, don't you mess with my people, because if you do, it's like, it's like touching my pupil. Besides that, they're, they're my favorites out there. They're favored. They are his favorite people. Do, you, any of you, do any of you know and understand that sometimes, at the same time, you can be favored and frustrated, all at the same time. You may deep down know and hang on to the belief that God loves you, that God's grace is for you, and you are a child of God. And on the other hand, you may feel like, but man, this hurts. I don't know where God is. I haven't felt him for a long time. There are times that you can be loving God and hating your situation all at the same time. And, and when times get rough like this, they become uh, joy robbers. <laughs> no wonder. In fact, you remember, in fact, people have asked me before, when Christians sin, you know, when a believer who loves God sins, what happens? Because we all, we all sin. Even if we love God, we sin. Does it affect our salvation? Are we going to heaven one moment? We sin. We're not going the next, uh, up and downs. Well, apart from that theological discussion, on the practical level, let me tell you, the Bible clearly says that the one thing sin and rebellion do to the Christian is it takes away our joy. Remember when David got caught sinning with Bathsheba and he denied it, he covered it up, he hid it. Uh, in essence, he put a hit out on her husband to try to cover it up. He thought he'd gotten away with it till Nathan the prophet shows up and says, David, a Jew, and David repents, and tradition tells us at that point wrote Psalm 51 in which authentic repentance, not just trying to please someone else, authentic repentance takes place. And you remember that one phrase he uses? He says, God, restore unto me the what? the joy 
of my salvation. I can feel it in my life and I can sometimes sense it and see it in yours. When you've gotten a little bit off track, maybe a whole lot off track with the Lord and sin which offers pleasure for a season, well, that season is over and I can see it in you that the pleasure of sin is gone and there's really not any of that joy of the Lord left in you right now. And it's sad because that joy is also our strength. I love it in uh, Psalm 137 when the psalmist there, I think it's kind of kind of a cute comment, painful but cute, when they're in captivity in Babylon and they say, and they say in Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of Zion when we're here in captivity in Babylon? The people had asked him to, it's kind of like, we don't like you Jews. Uh, we don't like what you stand for. We don't like what you believe for. But hey, what we like that. We like that music you guys sing. Sing us some of your happy songs. It'd be like today saying, man, we don't believe in your God. We want nothing to do with your faith. But well, we kind of like some of that gospel music. Sing some of that gospel music for us. And the people respond by saying, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? The joy is gone. <laughs> and sometimes, you ever notice this? Sometimes you don't even have to leave your own house to feel like you're living in a strange land. Sometimes just being here in California in these days and, and in these days, and I was born and raised in California. I love so many things about California. I can honestly say, and I'm totally honest in both these comments, I love California. I hate California. And both of those comments are 100% true. But California has become to me sort of a sort of a strange land. And I'm fine. I didn't have to even leave the state. Didn't have to leave my home. And you feel like, man, how can I sing the songs of God when I'm feeling like that? Now, chapter 40 as a whole. So because we're in chapter 40 of Isaiah right now. Uh, in this book, there's been a major, major mood swing. Let me say that again. A major mood swing when Isaiah gets to chapter 40. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Do you mind if I give you some Bible information right now? I'll do a little bit of teaching. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, by and large, are God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to let the people know, first of all, to warn them, to ask them to repent, and when they don't, God starts talking about all the consequences to their sin. Uh, look, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And the first 39 chapters, part of it, can kind of look like almost that stereotypical prophetical passage that can come across to non-believers as finger-pointing and judgmental because it, it is a little bit of doom and gloom. It's not God's fault, it's the people's fault, but still the 39 chapters are like that. By the time we get to chapter 40, man, there is a quick shift in, in, in God's mood. Uh, and you know, by the way, one of the greatest sermons I ever heard was by a female preacher back in the days when there weren't very many female preachers. And as a kid, I heard her give a talk one time on the moods of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it funny after all these years and hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons that I've heard over the years that I remember that one. And she talked about the different moods of the Holy Spirit. I remember there was, there was a warring mood, a, a mood where the Holy Spirit's ready to fight. There was a peaceful mood. Holy Spirit sometimes comes in and just wants to bring peace. There's a correct, there are all, all these different moods. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophetic mood of the book shifts. In fact, let, let me do some more teaching on the Bible. The shift is so drastic 
that most scholars to this day see the book of Isaiah as being written by different authors. Uh, if you ever go to a college, even to a lot of Christian schools, you'll find out about what they call proto-Isaiah, the original Isaiah, and they'll credit a lot of the first 39 chapters to this original Isaiah. Then there's one of his disciples that they might want to call Deutero or second, like the book of Deuteronomy is a repeat or a second given to the law. Deutero or second Isaiah. They get into Trito, which is third Isaiah later on. And there are stylistic differences that they point out. They said this could not have possibly been written by the same person. Uh, the other reason is that parts of Isaiah are spoken. You know, a lot of the prophets talk about the future. But Isaiah has points in it where it's almost like Isaiah is talking in the future. It's like he's a time traveler and he's there not prophesying about what's going to happen. He's there talking about what's going to happen and he's like being there. So a lot of scholars just say this had to be written by a lot of different authors. By the way, just a thought here. When biblical criticism comes along, and by criticism, I don't mean it's always negative. It just means they break down the Bible and try to point out, well, who really wrote all these books? Things like that. I mean, did Moses really write the first five books of the Bible? Uh, you know, how about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Who really wrote this? It, it, it can get very, very, very critical. I've always remembered there was a great book written in the 1960s by a professor at Berkeley called The Pooh Perplexed. And uh, in this book, he took the famous children's book, Winnie the Pooh, and applied a lot of the modern literary criticisms to the book of Winnie the Pooh and did it in a satirical manner that became quite funny. Like he did, a Marxist looks at Winnie the Pooh and this Marxist interprets all of Winnie the Pooh in a very Marxist manner. And, and, and he even did a little bit of what I'm talking about right now. He would talk about how Winnie the Pooh, the author, it had to come from several different authors because of the structure of it and the style of it. It was kind of a satirical takedown of a lot of what is commonly practiced in literary and biblical criticism. All this to say that the prophet Isaiah is often viewed as uh, that had to have more than one author. I've heard preachers talk from Isaiah 40 and talk about Isaiah's disciple doing it. And, and all that might be. I would just point this out to you for those of you that are interested in stuff like this. That nobody knows for sure they're basing all this upon the style of it. Because we do know this. It was a blow to radical liberal theologians when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, because up until the Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered, the, the earliest Isaiah we had was like a thousand years after Christ. It was like a thousand AD. We had no copies of Isaiah other than that. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we got all kinds of fragments of the Hebrew Bible. And guess what? One of the full scrolls, the book was already complete, was Isaiah. Liberal scholars were astounded because they thought there would be no way that Isaiah would just be one book. It would have to be all these different books that were later compiled and edited to what we now call Isaiah. Anyway, all that to say, let me go back to the point I, I want to make for you right now on the practical level. The mood shift in Isaiah 40 is very, very radical. And I think someone here today needs to have this kind of radical mood shift in your own life. Look how Isaiah 40 opens up when God says, 
Comfort, yes. In fact, the old King James would say, comfort ye, comfort ye my my people, comfort my people. Speak comfort, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity or her sin is forgiven and pardoned. And she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That's a Bible way of saying she's already paid the price enough and now the time has come for God's people to be delivered and set free. That is a word for someone I'm talking to right now. Because you yourself have been so down. And maybe you've been down because of stuff you've done, just like with Israel. They were all messed up, not because God was just mean and got mad at them and, you know, attacked them with all kinds of judgments. No, they had rebelled, they had refused to repent. Uh, God had asked them time and time again to turn to him. So they were in the mess. It was, it was like a, how do they say it? You got to sleep in the bed you made for yourself. That's, that's what they were doing, just like maybe you feel like that. But God has brought me to say to you today, the days of your pain and the days of your shame and the days of your feeling alienated are over, that God is here to bring comfort, comfort to you. Uh, I kind of feel like I almost want to go all Sam Cook on you right now and say it's been a long time coming, but change is going to come. In fact, uh, that's how I titled my first point. Change is going to come. God starts to tell people in chapter 40, this is the beginning of the end of this down period, of this low period. Today is the beginning of the end. Comfort the people. Their debt has been paid. I've heard their cry, and I'm going to deliver them. It's almost like God is saying to someone here right now that's with us right now, God is saying to you, I know where you are. You don't think think I'm anywhere around, but I know where you are. I know what you're facing. I know what you have been through. And I, listen to this, and God says to you, and I know how to to handle it. Uh, No matter how much they've been trying to bring you down, God says, I'm with you and I'm going to lift you back up. Now, before you're tempted to think, well, you know, about time God showed up, I want to remind you once again, as I've been emphasizing, that the people were in this mess to begin with because of their own sin and because of their refusal to accept God's forgiveness through repentance. So, So God is here now giving them a word of hope. Watch, a word of hope. A promise has arisen after all this warning and judgment and bad stuff of Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. Boom, the mood is now shifted, just like it is shifted in your life today. Something is shifting in your life today. God is beginning to bring a light. He's beginning to to bring hope. But he does point out at this point, it's gonna come. That means it's not here yet. That's why I want to just talk for just a quick second about meantime faith. What do you do when you've been going through a rough patch? Whether it's your own fault, whether it's just life, nothing you did wrong, just life, but you're going through a rough patch and God comes in and begins to bring a word of hope and a word of encouragement. Here's what I'm going to do for you. You go, yes, finally, I can see light at the end of the tunnel. I have some authentic hope. 
but what do you do until you get through that tunnel? Uh, I, I used to like to teach when I was teaching from the Old Testament that when God was speaking to the people about giving them the promised land, and this becomes a pattern throughout all of scripture and a pattern in our lives. I like to say it like this, there's the promise and then there's the provision. In other words, God promises something, and God's promises are yea and amen. It's going to happen. There is no doubt about it. It's the promise. But then there's the provision when the promise actually comes to fruition, when it actually happens. And between every promise and every provision is a problem. We got to make it just like, just like with Israel, when they enter into the promised land, they don't just have it promised one day and bang, it's there. No, man, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And even when they were ready to go in, Joshua had to lead them across the Jordan River. They faced Jericho. They faced giants. They faced all these problems. And so they had to learn to embrace the provision of the promises by making it through all of these all these problems. You see, you see, sometimes, listen to this, sometimes God does things in us while we're going through a problem. God does things in us while we're in captivity, in Babylon or addiction or hurts or pains. He does things in us in captivity that he really can't do in us when there's no captivity. In other words, before he brings us out of it, he will show us that he can keep us in it. Oh, I want to say that again. Very often before God brings us out of it, he needs to show us that he has the strength and power to keep us in it. Now, I know some of y'all, you're going to praise God once he gets you out of it, but I believe I'm talking to someone right now. I'm talking to a few old saints who know how to praise him and honor him and get to church anyway and smile anyway and sing praises anyway before you ever are delivered. You have the promise, but you don't yet have the provision. Boy, I know if we had time right now, there are testimonies in the, in the house today and praises about how God kept you in the midst of it. Just like God kept Daniel when Daniel was in that lion's den. Just like God kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into that burning hot fiery furnace, he didn't immediately get him out of it. He sustained him through it for a lot of different reasons. I love the fact that the Bible says that when they came out of that burning fiery furnace, it says not a hair on their head was singed. In fact, it says neither, them, neither their clothes nor anything about them even smelled of smoke. See, and all that, it, it made an impact, not only in their lives, but an impact on all of those around them. Uh, if someone says, well, why is, why is God taking so long? Well, again, part of the reason why God may be, from our perspective, taking his time, and by the way, God's timing is always perfect, but from our perspective, if he seems a little bit slow to us, sometimes it's because he's trying, to, he's trying to teach us a few things, show us a few things that he needs to teach us in the midst of our problems before he can get us out of those problems. Then there's also, very often, the required 
um, uh, strength we're going to need when God finally does bring us the promise, which is why there's so much emphasis on waiting. You need to wait upon the Lord and you'll renew your strength. Then you can mount up with wings as eagles. This idea of why God wants us to get strong first is hinted out and if not explicitly stated time and time again in scripture. Let me give you one example. In Exodus chapter 23, when God's talking to the people about how they're gonna possess this promised land, he makes this very interesting comment. He's talking about driving out the enemies and driving out the wild beasts that would destroy their crops and everything. God says, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out. <laughs> I don't really like that phrase when it applies to me sometimes. I want out now, God. But God says, little by little, I will drive them out before you. Look at this. Until you have increased. In other words, until you've grown, until you've strengthened, and you inherit the land. Man, that's why meantime faith between the promise and the problem, or in Isaiah 40 when God says, man, I'm, I'm getting ready now to deliver you, stop moping around, but the deliverance hasn't come quite yet. We have to have that meantime faith, and that meantime faith has to be ambidextrous. In other words, we have to be able to hold at almost at the same time uh, the, the pains we're going through, the problems we're going through, and yet still praise God, have faith, and not let go of that. Not let go of that. Well, I could say all kinds of things about this, but as I can see, our, our time is running out. Let me give you one more quick thought about waiting, and then I'm going to talk a lot about waiting again next time we're together. That This is really a two-parter on what it means to, to wait. Sometimes we have to slow down a little bit in our life. Slow down, because we're panicking. Slow down to catch up with God. At any rate, in Isaiah chapter 40, if you notice when I read that passage earlier, it said in, late, in the late part of verse 28, it said, the creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. He neither, in other words, God is strong. That's God's, uh, what I would call God's inherent strength. It's just strength he has. Then in the very next verse, it talks about his imparted strength, the strength he wants to give to you. He says, and he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Man, I love that. And then it says they will mount up with wings as eagles. We'll talk about that more next time. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. I, I, I love, in, in literary circles, they would call this image progress through descent. Let me say that again, progress through descent. Because he talks about mounting up, soaring, flying, if you will, like an eagle, then running like a marathon without getting weary, and then walking without getting faint. See, most time we want to do the opposite. Man, God's going to strengthen me to walk, and then I'll start to run, and woo, then I'm going to fly. But Isaiah uses a, a little different image here because he, God doesn't want to lift us out of something, lift us up just to lift us out of everything. He lifts us up to heal us, encourage us, to put us right back in the world where we can make a difference so we can walk by faith without getting weary. We've learned a few lessons and we're stronger than ever. I love the story that's told about the father who would always go on a walk, a daily walk with, with his little girl. And, uh, and, and 
his little girl, they go on, on pretty much the same walk every day and she loved the time with her daddy and her daddy loved the time with her. Well, one day, it was an extra pretty day, so the father thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a little farther today. So they took quite a bit of a longer walk. They walked down streets they'd never walked on before. So the little girl, she saw houses and, and sights and sounds she had never heard before. Traffic she hadn't seen before. People that she had never seen before. Everything was just, just really, really different. So the father finally, after a while, looked down at his little girl and said, uh, hey, do you know where you are? And she just looked up at him and she said, she said no. <laughs> he goes, do you know how to get home? And she kind of smiled and said, no. He said, are you afraid? At that, she had got a big smile and said, no, daddy, I'm not afraid. So he looked back at her and said, nice, you are a brave little girl. She responded back to him, I don't have to be brave, daddy, because I'm with you. I love that story because that very simply says what I'm trying to say to you today. You don't have to be the strongest person ever, the most you know, full of faith saint ever to walk this planet. If you'll just get with the Lord and wait upon Him, He'll renew your strength. You can mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint.